0: quips about you're listening to the valley labor report with david story and jacob morrison
1: the time has come for america to hear the truth we are going to stand with the And not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here, in our state, in our homes, and in our community. One day longer, one day stronger. One day longer, one day stronger. Because the future of labor's rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity
2: forever.
0: Valley this is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. It is Saturday, July 3rd, 2021, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens, listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of this program will play tomorrow, Sunday, July 4th, Independence Day 2021 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama, and sometime next week on WHIV in New Orleans, Louisiana. We are bringing you a full show of workers winning today, folks, so get ready. We're talking to Mary Beth Seitz-Brown, Interim Director of Organizing for the News Guild of New York. CWA, Local 31003, about their historic growth. We'll be catching up with Cooper Carraway, South Dakota AFL-CIO President, about the meatpacking worker strike threat from a few weeks ago. And bringing you the latest news in southern labor from Jonah Furman, All this and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, So remember, folks, the North Alabama DSA has a necessities drive this Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. at the IBEW Local 558 Union Hall on Clinton Avenue, right across from Yellowhammer and Campus 805. So bring by your non-perishable food items, your PPE, clothes, blankets, all that good stuff, and your donations will be forwarded to the Manna House. You can follow at DSA North Alabama on Twitter for more information. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week and get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Valley Labor Report. We are on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A L. And if you missed part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments and release them throughout the week. Uh, We also upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps. So to see if we are on your listening platform of choice, you can go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. We've got a website where you can buy our hats and stickers. We've only got 20 hats left, so you're going to want to grab one of those before we're out. That's thevalleylaborreport.org. And finally... If you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. One super quick news item. Before we get to our main interview with the New York CWA uh, uh, News Guild local, uh, their interim orga- organizing director, is the uh, the Labor Notes and Teamsters for a Democratic Union last week. Uh, they had a massive flood in their Detroit office. They lost tens of thousands of dollars of uh educational supplies of books of uh you know all sorts of stuff not to mention the damage done to the physical building so um the the labor notes of course does fantastic work uh and i'm not just saying that because i was in their latest print issue which uh you should subscribe to so you can read that Uh, it's very good uh but they have fantastic fantastic educational uh Educational things. They have great books. Uh, they facilitate trainings for unions. Uh, they were able to. They, they they were willing to give a free training on just cause to. Um, to us during our Mine Worker strike fundraising stream a few weeks ago, Uh, and it was just fantastic. The information was so good. They do such good work, and uh, similarly for Teamsters for a Democratic Union, they are a reform caucus within the Teamsters that is fighting to make the Teamsters, which is one of the biggest unions in the country, a militant, fighting, and democratic union, and they are doing good work. They have put together a coalition that is going to be running for international office uh, they're up for election in the fall, and they think their coalition is going to win the general presidency. That's huge. They, they're doing, I mean, such good work uh, for, for Labor Notes Teamsters for a Democratic Union. So help them. Uh, if you could, chip in $27 or more to their fund to recoup the damages from the massive flood. Like the flood went up five feet in their basement. Just huge amount of damage. So if you could donate to their uh, fundraiser, you can follow uh, e- uh, Labor Notes on Twitter. And they've got the, the donation link, and we'll also tweet it out. And we'll put it in the description for the video at a later time. But make sure you do that. They do really good work. All right. So uh, Mary Beth Seitz Brown is the director of organizing, the interim director of organizing for the uh, New York CWA. Oh, uh, we may have uh, we, we may not be muted unmuted on the Zoom. Yeah, we got it. Okay, so we're gonna unmute us. Yeah. Okay. Now you can hear us. Very good. Uh, well, that's fine, because uh, we just we, we were just about to start the interview. So. <laughs> uh, but thanks for catching that for us, Mary Beth. So Mary Beth Sides-Brown is the interim organizing director for the New York News Guild uh, CWA Local 31003. And, uh, folks, if you know anything about the News Guild, you know that they're busy. So, you know, Mary Beth, sister, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, for people, there are going to be folks that don't know what's somehow. There are going to be folks who don't know about what's happening with the News Guild, the explosive organizing growth that you have seen over the past several years. So help us, give us like a 30,000 kind of square uh, 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 foot view of What's happening with the, the News Guild um, and, and, and your recent organizing wave? Like how, how many shops have y'all organized? How many more uh, workers do you have as part of your membership and, and, and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, so um, I mean to put it simply, journalists are organizing a lot. Uh, there's been a huge wave of media workers organizing, especially in the last five or so years. So um, in the News Guild, we've had a growth from you know 2016, 2017. Our whole international union has added about 45,000 members. Um, and our local, um, which is where I work, uh, went from about 3,000 members to 4,000 this year and we're going to be adding another 2,000 members by the end of 2021. So um, we've wow. seen really huge growth um, have had over hundred successful campaigns in the last few years of organizing. Um, and I think it's only going to continue. So it's a really exciting time to be part of this industry, part of the labor movement. Um, and yeah, we're busy.
0: <laughs> what was the number for? did you say forty five thousand or forty five hundred new members? forty five hundred yeah, forty five hundred new members. That is amazing. that's that's just really fantastic. and how how many shops is that? How many union elections have you won over the past few years?
2: So, um, in our international, we've had over a hundred campaigns. Not all of those have had to go to the National Labor Relations Board. A lot of them have gotten uh, what's called voluntary recognition, where you can bypass that process if the employer agrees, um, usually because you have a super majority of support. So, um, yeah, but have had many elections also, um, especially around the country and our international. Uh,
0: and for people that there's going to be a lot of folks that say bypass the election what does that mean why is that good is that bad that sounds kind of scary talk to us about why the voluntary recognition is so important and it's something that unions fight for and it's something that y'all have been able to win in in so many mm-hmm. of these campaigns
2: yeah so if anyone has any experience at the National Labor Relations Board, they can tell you that uh, employers have rigged a lot of the process to drag it out, to be able to make the process really procedural and bureaucratic and confusing. Um, And that really just benefits employers. It gives them months and months to be able to wage anti-union campaigns, to wear people down. Even people who really support the union just become really Uh, demoralized and stressed out by constant anti-union campaigning. So, um, you know, the board rules have changed over time. Basically, with every administration, we get a slightly different set of rules as we get more or less favorable people on the board. Um, But even when it's a favorable board, uh, the process can be pretty lengthy and disempowering for some people. So Mm -hmm. um, a lot of unions um, build up pressure to... uh, demand voluntary recognition from their employers to basically say, if you want to live by the values, you know, it's common with progressive or mission driven, um, you know, nonprofit employers, et cetera, but not exclusively. But um if you really want to not be anti union, then voluntary recognition is is the best path to do that because um it saves everyone a long um A long process that really just proves what we already knew from the beginning which is members sign union cards as part of the organizing process they cast their votes they show their public support for the union Um, and so often going through the NLRB process is just to reaffirm that so um, but you know there are cases where the employer says no (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you have to um, you know either escalate on that demand or go through the board process so we've done both but Um, We have had a good amount of success in, um, you know, making voluntary recognition more of the norm within our industry.
0: Right. And one of those that have not uh, opted to go with the industry standard of voluntary recognition where a supermajority of employees express public support for the union is MSNBC, which, well, if you <laughs> if you listen to the station, this conservative talk radio station, you would think uh, MSNBC is staffed with socialist, re- is managed by, is owned by socialist revolutionaries. So, <laughs> so if that's the uh, you know if that's the, the tact that you take uh, or, or or the opinion you have of MSNBC, then that would be very surprising to you. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: Yeah, so that campaign is with the Writer's Guild of America East, and they're doing awesome work on it. And I think it just shows that the uh, you, know, you can be a, quote-unquote, progressive employer and still union bust. In fact, right. almost all of them do. So uh, and workers need to be prepared for union busting no matter who their employer is. Right. Um, and it can be very revealing to go through this process and see... You know, a boss
0: is a boss is a boss. <laughs> That's right. That's right. A yeah, boss
3: is, I, I'm yeah. so glad you're, you're on today to reiterate that message because it's been kind of a theme of our show lately, mm-hmm. talking about MSNBC, uh, the National Education Association, and these other organizations, which at least, you know, pretend to be progressive, or in some cases, maybe they kind of are. But uh, when it comes to their own employees, it's often a different type of mentality so right. a boss is a boss is a boss we appreciate you <laughs> saying that we're gonna live by that motto right
0: so um we are we've only got like about a minute left in this segment so so we're gonna have to pick it up on the other side of the break but before we go why don't you start us off hel- helping us to contextualize this recent explosive organizing wave like why now and why in the news industry
2: yeah, well, the news industry is under attack. Um, you know, employers are consolidating their power. So the largest newspaper chain, Gannett, recently had a merger with Gatehouse, which is one of the other major chains. They now own one out of every five newspapers across the country. Um, a hedge fund called Alden Global Capital recently bought up Tribune Publishing. So if you like the New York Daily News, Chicago Tribune, now they are owned by a hedge fund, and they're the second largest newspaper chain in the U.S., Um, And really since 2008, newsroom employment has plummeted. So we've lost half of newsroom jobs. The overall news industry employment's down 23%. And it's because owners are consolidating their power and um, they are extracting more and more profit from the industry, trying to reduce labor as much as possible. Um, And I think just like workers everywhere else, there's been constant layoffs, wages are stagnant, healthcare costs are skyrocketing. Um, and people don't feel like they have a voice on the job to be able to fight back. So they're doing what workers for all history have done, which is joining together collectively. Um, But I think that there's just been particularly visible um, and dramatic attacks on the industry by hedge funds, by these um, monopolies, essentially, these monopoly corporations, and um, people have realized the only way to move forward is together.
0: Right, that's exactly, and, and so we're coming up on a break now, we're going to pick this up on the other side of the break, and I, I want to know some of, you know, you're mentioning the power structures there, and why the conditions are so bad in the news industry, uh, I, I want to learn more about, like, what are specifically journalists, anchors, and, and, and things like this uh, facing, so we're going to talk more to Mary Beth on the other side, stay tuned.
1: You're listening to the Valley
0: Labor Report, with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, believes all workers are entitled to fairness, dignity, and respect. AFGE also knows that the best way to guarantee proper treatment is for workers to stand together, united, looking out for each other. In AFGE, we fight for workers every day to ensure a workplace that is safe and free from harassment. If you're a federal employee and want to be a part of this union to protect yourself and your fellow workers, call 256 Eight seven six four eight eight zero. Let's go! All power to the workers. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name. Is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host, Adam Keller. My girlfriend's also in the studio. Uh, Ryan brought us some donuts this morning. She's hanging out with us, uh, having some fun. I appreciate it. Uh, the donuts, I have not had time to eat one yet, but I'm sure they're very good. Uh, so, um, We're talking to Mary Beth Sides-Brown. She is the interim... Director of organizing for the New York News Guild CWA local 31003 uh, about their explosive uh, new organizing that they have uh, that, that they've seen over the past few years. And she was giving us some context of the you know the, the, the news industry has gotten really, really tough. To be a worker inside of, and and she explained some of the reasons for that, some of the structural reasons, the consolidation of power by the bosses, um, by corporations, by you know the, the these huge institutions uh, buying out smaller places, uh, and 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 thus giving workers less power. So, wh- what are actually the conditions on the ground and in the newsroom that are resulting from that?
2: Yeah. So as all of that consolidation happens and bosses want to extract more and more profit from fewer and fewer people, um, your job gets a lot harder, unsurprisingly. So, um, you know, everything from we've seen members who organize to um, get rid of onerous story quotas. So, you know, they're expected almost like they're turning out widgets (laughs) uh, to turn out a certain number of stories um, in a really, Uh, a stressful amount of time. So for example, Law 360, which is a legal newswire that organized in 2016, one of the the first few shops that kicked off the organizing wave in our local, um, they had a requirement that they needed to turn out to a story every two hours, um, which, if you've ever <laughs> reported a story, you know, if, especially if you're talking about legal complicated concepts, to do all of that work, write an entire piece and publish it, and then move on and do that four times per day is really stressful. Um, you know, a lot of members before they organize don't have access to overtime, but they're expected to work around the clock. If you're in the news business, you're kind of always on, there's always stuff on your beat that you need to be prepared for. Um, and you had fewer and fewer resources to do it. So, you know, we've recently organized a couple newsrooms in uh, New Jersey, for example, um, and just New Jersey media has absolutely uh, consolidated and where people used to be able to report on one town or one beat, they're now expected to report on larger and larger parts of the state, longer and longer hours, and their pay is stagnant. Um, For some people, it's effectively lower than it's been for their entire careers because they haven't gotten a raise in 20 years. So um, it's really stressful work. And I think during, especially the Trump administration as you know, he attacks journalists, a lot of those folks felt more and more like their work is a public good. If you are reporting during the pandemic, that's life-saving information to report on how to stay safe, what's happening in your community, what's happening with your local government, Um, You know, there's this tension that arises from, I need to deliver this information to my community, and I have no resources to do it, um, because my boss wants to save as much money as possible and sell off this newsroom for parts, essentially. So... All of that, um, you know, on top of, you know, the news media business, just like every other business, is very racist, very sexist. There's been the Me Too movement. There's been all the conversations in the last year after the George Floyd protests. Um, All of this leaving, you know, newsrooms, which are overwhelmingly white um, and often led by white men, feeling uh, like they can't actually do their jobs well without being seen and respected and paid appropriately. Um, and invested in to be able to grow. So I think those are all of the sort of day-to-day conditions that have led people to say, you know, it's not, we can't just do this with a diversity committee. We can't just do this on our own. We need to form a union, have bargaining power, and take collective action um, because it's it's just too much.
0: Right, right. And that's, you you know, I, uh, I, I, I spoke about this last week about how, you know and, and that's something that you mentioned before the break or, or, or that you kind of alluded to about the, the the corporations really trying to squeeze everything they can out of the workers and the institutions that they own that that they that they they manage not through virtue of their labor or their uh, you know, ability to report the truth accurately or to facilitate such accurate reporting uh, they own it by virtue of their wealth and really a better way to think about these institutions as institutions is really like hedge funds that have a have that, ha, that that also invest in a newsroom you know which mm-hmm. is not to say that the reporters or anchors um, like that's not to say that they are doing bad work or that they are that they they um, are have malignant intentions or or uh, malicious intentions. I mean, or anything like that. But the people that own these institutions do and you know and and so the reporters and and everybody is having to operate within that system and so how do we how do we give the workers who want to report the truth who want to be independent who want to uh be able to uh, uh uh challenge and speak truth to power how do we give them the ability to do that it's to give them more power and autonomy and the best way to do that is through unionization
2: absolutely um you know I think that the um you know hedge funds in particular they really there's nothing there are hedge funds in every industry right it's not like the news business is unique it's just that I think this is actually a a clarifying moment for some journalists to realize oh yeah we're like every other worker right (laughs) hedge funds are going to come to us just like they've come to hospitals and retail um, and we have more in common with the Toys R Us workers who were a victim of private equity uh, than than we think. Um, so I think it's been really clarifying for a lot of people to see the way that the, the industry is not immune to all of the same patterns that have been happening throughout the economy. Um, and that's also I think a radicalizing experience to then realize I am a worker. I'm not just a professional, I'm not just, you know, I think sometimes white-collar intellectual workers don't necessarily feel connection to the working class. Right. Um, but realizing that you have the, you know, common experiences of being shaped by the same trends that are happening across the economy can can make you realize, I'm a worker, too, and I need the same right. protections other workers have.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I have co-workers. Uh, I Obviously, I'm in a union, and I I have a more you, you know maybe an intellectual job. I like I work in an office, right? And and um, you know my labor comes from my brain as opposed to like my muscles, and uh, which is convenient for me uh but but, you know uh like i have coworkers who are not members of the union and they're like i don't understand why we need a union like uh, you know we we have you know uh, i'm fine i i don't i'm not like a coal miner or whatever and it's like that doesn't it doesn't matter whether you like you know pick up rocks or you fill out spreadsheets you are selling your labor and you have a boss like that's all it takes to need a union and we meet those criteria, so we, we need a union, and so does every worker who meets those criteria. If you sell your labor, whether you're you know, picking up rocks or filling in spreadsheets or anything else, and you have a boss, then you need a union and and that yeah uh, that's such an important point that you that 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 you you brought out there uh, because so many professional workers quote unquote you know professional workers people who have degrees they don't like to conceive of themselves that way and i think that's that's kind of by design there's a lot of institutions there's you know that's really convenient for our bosses it's very convenient <laughs> for our bosses that that a lot of people in these blue uh, these white collar professional quote unquote jobs don't like to conceive of themselves as workers it's very convenient for our bosses we're talking to Mary Beth Seitz Brown the interim organizing director of the New York News Guild and she's going to tell us some of their best uh, so, uh, highlight some of the contract wins and some of the worker stories from their recent organizing growth on the other side of this break stay tuned if you're looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from real roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334. That's 256-383-3334. Or via email at local 477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report.
4: More you apart. The soil
0: you held sacred now begin with. Labor creates Your all mind. wealth. All wealth should go to labor. This Your is the Valley mind. Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co host Adam Keller. We are talking to Mary Beth Seitz Brown. She is the interim organizing director for the News Guild of New York, CWA, local 31003. Um, and, you know, we we mentioned at the top of the segment they have had 4,500 new workers, like a hundred shops organized over the past several uh, over the past few years. No other union in the country is really seeing this kind of. Uh, no other industry, I should say, the W the Writers Guild of America East is is also seeing some some pretty big organizing. But the but no other industry in the United States is seeing this kind of this kind of explosive growth and and so really excited to be able to talk to her about that uh today on the show so can you tell us mary beth what some of the uh you know what are some of the things that workers have been able to win through their organizing with the news guild
2: yeah so um we're coming off of just a few i think two weeks ago um Uh, three shops at Condé Nast. So the New Yorker, Ars Technica and Pitchfork all won um, after a credible strike threat where they were about to walk off the job. Um, They won a really amazing set of um, agreements in their contract. So that's everything from uh, lifting the pay floor to something that's at least mostly livable in New York City, uh, $60,000 a year, which is a big improvement from what people were paid before. Um, overtime and comp time. Um, they've also um, done some really interesting things around non-disclosure agreements. So if people remember from the Me Too era, um, one of the main ways that uh, Harvey Weinstein, for example, was able to keep uh, his victims quiet was for by having them all sign non-disclosure agreements where they took a sum of money in order and to agree to basically not say anything about the treatment they experienced. So that's not just happening uh, in Hollywood, it also has happened in, in the media industry. And so um, these workers put a, you know got a win on banning NDAs for um, sexual harassment and racial discrimination. Um, they've also got some really interesting language around diversity and um, issues of diversity and inclusion at the workplace. So uh, they won a company-wide commitment that at least half of the candidates who are being considered for jobs have to come from underrepresented backgrounds, um, and like I was saying earlier, news is and uh, media industry is very white. Um, right. Largely, you know, historically has privileged people who come from upper class backgrounds who can take really low wages because they have family money. Um, And that's kept the media having, you know, when people say the liberal elite media, (laughs) there's an element of truth to, you know, who's been able to afford to take those jobs. Right. Um, So I think that is going to be one of the most important things in this wave of organizing is creating industry standards that make sure that people can afford to live in the city that they work in and that there are actual contractually enforceable agreements around um you can't just talk the talk and put up your black lives matter statement Mm. um, after protests you need to actually do the work to recruit people to come and shape your newsroom and shape your coverage so i'm really incredibly proud of all of the work that they did to secure all those wins because i think that's going to pave the way for all of these other workers who've organized who are still fighting for their first contracts to get similar agreements um and make that you know the new industry norm and that's part of why we do new organizing right going back to all right all this explosive growth what's the purpose sometimes you know we have debates within the labor movement about you know new organizing versus um you know working with your existing membership but through new organizing you can have more industry density and fight for these kinds of provisions and make them a norm by having your members coordinate and push the same contract language so Um, You know, that's not just at the New Yorker, but also we had PC Magazine and Mashable and Quartz, three other outlets also recently got their first contracts um, and had that similar language as well. So it's incredible to see, um, in addition to the sort of economic stuff that people always fight for, what are some of the non-economic things that people want to do to change the industry, the way it looks and operates and who gets to be in it?
3: I right. think that is so important, and that's something else we've discussed quite a bit on the show. Is that when we when we want to fight discrimination, sexual harassment, and other forms of, of bigotry in the workplace, that is best fought from the bottom up through bargaining yes. power and union organizing, not by you know just hoping and praying that your bosses will have a uh, effective HR department that's Mm -hmm. not the way to to make lasting change there so i think sometimes there's a these artificial conflicts between labor you know fighting labor issues and fighting issues of race and gender discrimination but really the two go hand in hand and if you Mm -hmm. are a worker who's being discriminated against on the job the best uh outlet you have should be a union right and that's and and hr departments are they
0: they work for your boss. I mean, you know, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not to say that maybe there aren't some good natured HR people, but like their their paycheck is written by your boss, right? And a union, is, so there's a fundamental conflict of interest there. Uh, but a union. If you've got staff for the union, who's that paid for? It's paid for by you. They work for you, literally. And then the ones that aren't staff, that you're just member organizers, you are doing it on your own time, or your brothers and sisters on the job are doing it on their own time. There's, you know, there's not that conflict of interest there. Um, there's, there's much more kind of real worker power through unions than through. HR departments, um, and and you mentioned that about the how important it is to set industry standards so that people f- that don't have pri- pri- privileged backgrounds can come into these industries. You know, uh, conservatives say that uh, look, that minimum wages stop people from being able to get on the first rung of the ladder, and that's just it's it's absurd on its face because there are still places in this country where you can have un paid internships like dc like these big law firms and so this is like this should be the test case okay you you, you've got people working for free there's no minimum wage and who is it is it Un, is it underrepresented people that are getting on this far strung of the ladder and climbing their way up the ladder? No, it's people who have privilege whose parents can uh, 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 can fund their summer internship completely in DC, uh, and and those people get into Congress. Those people get into the law firms. Those people get into the newsrooms because they're privileged, not because having no minimum wage helps people climb up the ladder. It's it's silly. So setting these industry standards for people as they come into the industry so important for people to actually be able to actually climb the ladder.
2: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the media plays such a huge role in, I think we a lot of people often say, you know, the media this, the media that. And it's true that it's one of the most powerful industries in terms of shaping public perception of almost everything around us, right? Like this is how we learned about, um, you know, it's how we learn about police violence. It's how we learn about what's happening in the economy. It's how we learn about what's happening in our government.
1: Right. And
2: it really matters that there are people reporting those stories who understand them from firsthand experience and who have uh, a view that is not just the you know the normative view on things. And if we are able to change the makeup of newsrooms so that they genuinely reflect all of the people. Um, that they're reporting on in those communities um, that I think is going to have a lasting impact for generations, but it's going to require contractual commitments that are legally enforceable. So I think you're right that that's something that, you know, I've seen a lot. Companies have very effectively captured the narrative on diversity, equity, and inclusion as something that is separate from union issues that those are you know, uh, DEI, you know, diversity, et cetera, that's something that a consultant does, it's not something that workers do. Um, and I think that is so wrong and is so important to challenge because as you said, um, if management and bosses are leading that work, they're always going to make sure that they don't have to be held accountable. Right. If workers are leading that work, um, they can hold their bosses accountable with different tools like a union contract, like collective action, um, and that has a much different accountability than, you know, we've hired yet another DEI consultant to come in and tell us, you know, that we're too white. So um, I'm really excited to see what this, all of these wins are going to translate to in five, 10 years um, as slowly we're starting to create these sort of structural shifts through through members organizing.
0: Right. That, yeah. I mean, that's just Nail on the head, nail on the head. So, Marybeth, we've got about two minutes left, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you go. So, can, what do you have any closing thoughts? Like, what you know, what what are Do you have any closing thoughts for for the audience about the explosive organizing that we've seen in the news industry, or what you what you want folks to understand, or if there's anybody at some of the local news stations or some of the local papers here that that, that may be listening, what would you say to people? <laughs>
2: Well, I would say that, you know, we at the new Guild don't have to be unique. There's nothing super special about what we are doing. Um, we're just doing a strong organizing program. <laughs> we're organizing workers. We are agitating around the issues that matter to them. We are building supermajority campaigns, and that's really hard work. It's not to say that it is easy, but it is pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, you know, the program is possible for other unions to take up, Um, and, you know, there's no secret thing about journalists that are somehow uh, more organizable than other workers. Um, If anything, I think our members just have a big platform and spotlight, so, you know, all of us probably see when New York Times tech workers organize or the New Yorker wins a a contract more than we might see hotel workers winning their contract or nursing home workers that want a new union. Um, And so I think our members, you know, are really in the spotlight because they are in the media. Um, But I hope that spotlight shows other unions that it's possible, not that we are the exception. Um, And I think that there is, you know, winning is addictive. Once you get a couple (laughs) wins, that's part of the wave is people see, okay, if they can do it, we can do it. Um, And I hope that other workers, your listeners, people in other industries, Um, That the the takeaway is not so much the News Guild is so special and different, but rather, if they can do it, we can do it too. And we should we should try. We should get an organizing program off the ground. We should organize our workplace um, because it is possible.
0: Wow, that's that's great. I, I can't think of any. Yeah, that. That's so cool. The News Guild isn't, it doesn't have to be special because you're just doing what unionists have done uh, throughout the history of the labor movement here in this country and uh, and, and winning for workers. Uh, Mary Beth, thank you so much. Where can people find you, find more about the News Guild and stuff like that? Uh,
2: you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, my local is at NY Guild. Um, the International is at News Guild. Um, and our websites are at or nygill.org newsgill.org um and yeah
0: here in huntsville federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars what we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness dignity and respect the american federation of government employees afge local 1858 is a union of working people looking out for each other making sure that we're treated right to inquire about joining or to learn more, call
1: 256-876-4880. The Dale Jackson Show, weekday mornings only on WVNN.
4: Lonely dead, stuck, bleeding pain. Lonely dead, shot, she's
1: the
0: This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, Adam Keller. Uh, we just got done talking to Mary Beth Seitz-Brown from the New York News Guild about their really, really cool uh, organizing that they've been doing. Very cool stuff. I highly recommend you check it out. Um, so, let's go to uh, what happened last week in Southern Labor. Uh we figure that out every week now by reading uh, Jonah Furman's newsletter on Substack. Who gets the bird. I think is the address. Um, and so we pull out everything that happened in the South, and it, it's kind of like a little teaser. You want us you want to hear what happens in the South? You can listen to us reading off his newsletter, but there's so much stuff happening outside of the South in the United States that he, he he talks about in his newsletter. So I highly recommend checking it out every week. He sends it on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or something. And he, he lets us know what happened in the United States. And, and, and so we, we read it off What Happened in the South as kind of a teaser. So make sure you check that out. You can follow him on Twitter at Jonah Furman. uh, J-O-N-A-H-F-U-R-M-A-N. So uh, we'll start off with new organizing. There were 104 freight drivers, mechanics, and dispatchers at Garten Trucking in Covington, Virginia. They are organizing with the Association of Western Pulp and Paper Workers. Um... He, he mentioned in his newsletter that that's so strange that he actually wonders if that's some kind of clerical error. Because why would truckers uh, join the Association of Western Pulp and Paper Workers? I don't know, but sometimes people do that. Sometimes people join strange unions. Um, 19 drivers for chemicals distributor Univar Solutions in Houston, Texas, are organizing with the Teamsters, Local 988. Nine mechanics for the Intermodal Mexico in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, are organizing with the Teamsters, Local 769. And finally, outside of the NLRB, um... School nurses in Melville, Missouri, outside of St. Louis, have unionized and won a contract. Why is it outside of the NLRB? Because the NLRB, which is set up by the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, sets up the National Labor Relations Board that governs labor relations among private sector employees. So federal, public employees, or state and municipal employees are under different Labor relations regimes. So that happened outside of the NLRB. Uh, we had some NLRB losses. 50 workers at Coca Cola in Beckley, West Virginia voted 20 to 25 not to join the Teamsters Local 175. That's a shame. Uh, there is a decertification vote. That is going to be scheduled soon. At least 30 percent of the 468 nurses at Cleveland Clinic, Indian uh, Indian River Hospital, Cleveland Cleveland Clinic Indian River Hospital, long name in Vero Beach, Florida, have filed to decertify uh, their union, the Teamsters Local 769, uh, and like any other NLRB. Vote. That's going to have to go through the whole election process, but that's something to watch. The Cleveland Clinic acquired the hospital in January of 2019. Strikes and bargaining. um, For the third time in three months, the UAW Local 2069 has a tentative agreement with Volvo Truck in Dublin, Virginia. Uh, The last two times, the agreement was voted down by huge margins. So we'll see what's going to happen. This vote is going to take place on July the 9th. So we'll be watching that and maybe be able to tell you uh, what happens next week with that vote. Hopefully it's a good contract, and hopefully, if it's a good contract, they vote for it. And hopefully, if it's not a good contract, they vote it down and say, screw you. (laughs) The UMWA strike at Warrior Matt Cole in Brookwood, Alabama, hits its fourth month and remains heated and contentious as ever. Uh, Kim Kelly... Is constantly putting out really good stuff on this. Make sure you're following her at Grim Kim on Twitter. They just released the second installment in a mini-documentary series that she is doing with the Real News Network uh, about the coal miners' wives. Um, so make sure you check that out. I've still got to get around to watching that. i sure Kim it's fantastic. And Kim just
3: got a, a great piece in Team Vogue published about Mother Jones yes. and connecting that to the modern struggle down in Brookwood. So a little bit of history, a little bit of catching you up on what's happening uh, with those miners, so definitely check it out.
0: Right. ExxonMobil workers are still locked out in Beaumont, Texas. They are organized with the steel workers. Ten New Orleans Department of Public Works employees went on strike this week, citing low pay. Uh, As one worker put it, I'm working for the city and bringing home a $352 check for one week. Come on now. That's what Eric Gardner said. Uh, at at the New Orleans Department of Public Works. So uh, they're on strike. Um, So hopefully they're able to get something
3: for that. And I Uh, hope they're listening on WHIV in New Orleans. Oh, that's right! Hey, Uh, I hope one of those ten maybe gets to hear the shout-out. Contact the show. We'd love to talk to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Reach out to us. We're on Twitter, at Labor Reporters. Facebook, The Valley Labor Report. I'm on Twitter, Jacob M underscore AL. DM us, and we'll get you on the show. City workers in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, also went on strike after the city council rejected a 10-cent property tax tax increase that would have provided a raise for city employees. Um, When 1,800 nurses in Asheville, North Carolina unionized with the National Nurses Union, there was a healthy amount of skepticism as to whether they could turn that vote into a first contract. Well, Jonah says, haters beware because the South is not only organizing but is now reaching tentative agreements. Very cool. Haters beware. Uh, after <clears throat> after a strike threat, the union staff of the National Education Association have a tentative agreement. Not totally sure exactly what the contents of that agreement are going to be, but uh, presumably that's going to come up before a vote of the staff organization's membership, and we'll see whether or not they accept that. Um. Politics and legislation, Luis Felice Leon, uh, friend of the show, we've had him on the show a few times, has a piece at the American Prospect about Unite Here's voting rights campaign sending Freedom Riders from across the country to Washington, D.C. this week. Farm workers are dying in the West Coast heat wave, and the United Farm Workers are pushing for safety standards to provide relief and help workers refuse unsafe work. We'll be talking more about that, diving more into that later in the show. The Springfield, uh, oh, and, sorry, new section, internal union politics. The Springfield, Missouri Education Association has a new president. The UMWA has a new international secretary treasurer after the abrupt resignation of Levi Allen, Purportedly to spend more time with his family. I'm not sure uh, what exactly is going on there, but wishing him the best of luck. Hope nothing is hope nothing is is terribly wrong. Uh, but that was that was came as a surprise to everybody that I know down there. Um, so that that's it for last week in Southern Labor. Uh, Adam's going to give us some local updates. If you want to see what's going on, what happened the rest in the rest of United States labor, subscribe to Who Gets the Bird. by Jonah Furman.
3: Absolutely. Uh, just to give you a couple of local updates, uh, the biggest story right now, and we've covered this on the show quite a few times, uh, the city of Huntsville's response to the protests last June, the response to the response. Uh, there's been a lot of ongoing um, reporting about this because, unfortunately, the city of Huntsville has done very little to address any of the concerns brought up, not just by a community activist, but uh, but also from the report that they commissioned through their advisor committee. And my understanding is they've spent about $700,000 through this outside law firm to produce a report that they have promptly ignored. So uh, if you go on ao.com, Paul Gaddis has provided an update. The city of Huntsville has finally issued some written responses to this report, but right now, the, the vibe I'm getting is that the Tommy Battle and his cronies have decided they've done nothing wrong. They were doubled down on that opinion, uh, but they would be glad to accept more tax dollars for training. So uh, I want to dive into that maybe a little bit more next week when we've had more time to digest it. Uh, a couple other things. On that note, District 1 in Huntsville is having a town hall on July 7th. That would be Wednesday. And the next day on Thursday is the next city council meeting. So if you are concerned about uh, the city's lack of response and their response to ongoing police brutality, to um, improper handling of protests and the just real lack of accountability in that police department, definitely encourage you to check out that city council meeting. Local uh, Around the state, we've also had a couple of great things put out by Josh Moon with the Alabama Political Reporter. Uh, he did a deep investigative dive, and which is kind of timely. We've, we've talked here about the News Guild and the destruction of local news in particular. And there's just not a lot of investigative journalism happening in Alabama. So I, w- I was glad to see this piece put out by Josh Moon about missing campaign funds. Uh, there's been a mysterious... Uh, disappearance of campaign funds from uh, local representative richie horton and representative horton has apparently nothing to do with it he's just as confused as everyone it involves red brick strategies which was a political shop uh, that had been used by mayor tommy battle among others so check that out um, and another piece that josh put out that actually comes originally from pro publica is about Fraycar america uh, they had a plant in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, right near Florence. We have plenty of friends there. They accepted a $10 million PPP loan and then promptly outsourced to Mexico. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, that is a great example of corporate greed right here in the Tennessee Valley.
0: Folks, we'll be right back. If there are, uh, Adam may have a couple other local updates. We'll hit those at... Uh, right after we come back, and then we're going to talk to Cooper Caraway. Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, healthcare, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at IAMAW44.org.
0: Jacob Morrison here with my co-host Adam Keller uh, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up we had a couple other local updates that we wanted to bring y'all so Adam what were your
3: what were the last few local updates that we had? Sure. Uh, friends of the show, Alabama Arise, uh, I told you they had a great uh, health care for all town hall last week and coming up on July 13th, they have a justice for all online town hall uh, reporting back on what has changed, what hasn't changed in terms of criminal justice reform at the state level uh, down in Montgomery. So definitely encourage you to check that out. Uh, and on that note, there was a great uh, piece that was put out just a couple of weeks ago. I'm a little bit late in reporting this, but Facing South put out an article how Alabama organizers blocked Governor mm. Ivy's prison lease plan. That and was there was a lot of great work done by some grassroots organizers, most of them college students, actually. Yeah. And From, high school students. I high think. school students, yeah. So a lot of young folks... Uh, symbol to coalition and were able to put influence on the banks and actually help squash governor ivy's proposal uh which was going to be sort of a pseudo privatized prison uh my understanding was that the state would still run the prison but the Mm -hmm. property would be leased out and i'm not really sure what the advantage of that would be uh beyond to the company who of course right. is going to be collecting right. rent uh so great work by those activists uh like i said how alabama organizers block governor ivy's prison lease plan that is on facing south always great to report out grassroots victories
0: Yep, that's exactly right. We had somebody in the chat asking about, uh, he'd want to know why the uh, nurses at Indian River decertified. They didn't actually decertify. They filed a petition to hold a decertification vote. So all that we know for sure is that at least 30% of those 468 nurses signed cards saying they want to decertify. We don't know. or The, the vote hasn't happened. They haven't decertified, and we don't know if they will. So um, we're going to bring on now uh, Cooper Carraway. Cooper is the president of the South Dakota AFL-CIO, uh, uh, and we're going to talk about um, – he, he's going to get us caught up on the – a situation with the meatpacking workers uh, in his state, Cooper. Can you remind us? We talked about it a few weeks ago, and if w- people want more details, they can go uh, listen to that conversation. We had a pretty extended conversation about that, but just give us the top line. What were they going through? Why did they authorize a strike there?
4: Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll give you a crash course real quick. So what happened was the. Uh, uh, Smithfield workers, uh, experienced last year the, the, number one hotspot, uh, in the United States for the coronavirus. Over 1,200, uh, uh, workers tested positive, uh, several died, um, and all year they're being told they're essential, they're heroes, they're this, they're that. They came to the bargaining table this year and they're treated like uh, disposable, uh, parts of the machinery of the plant. Um, not only are there, uh, uh, wages and, and other things are uh, rejected, but they're uh, asked to make concessions when it comes to their, the amount of breaks they take and, and the amount of unpaid leave and, and stuff like that. Um, so the, the, the workers decided, you know, pretty, pretty quickly that, that that's un- unacceptable. Um, they stood together. They voted 99% to uh, reject management's proposal, then voted 98% uh, in favor of strike authorization. Uh, now this plant, uh, 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 produces about 5% of the United States' uh, uh, pork product in total. Um, and so I think that the uh, company bosses at Smithfield, uh, probably getting pressure from other parts of the country, decided that it was much cheaper uh, to go ahead and back down um, and uh, give the workers what they wanted uh, rather than risk uh, a strike.
0: Right. That's a, that. That was uh, something that I read in, a, in an interview or a statement by one of your uh, by by one of the folks in, in the UFCW there that the company uh, was that they felt like the company was really taken aback by the militancy by the fact that uh, they voted to authorize a strike. All forty two hundred of these workers, many of whom are immigrants and are thus in a, a kind of precarious situation, ninety eight percent of them voted to authorize a strike. That's like that really took the company by surprise and really increased. Their uh, bargaining power as they when they went to the table. So what was it that they were able to win in this tentative agreement?
4: Yeah, so they were able to get uh, the wage uh, increases that they were asking for. Uh, they got uh, nearly two dollars an hour wage increases added on to the base pay, uh, which is you know which which changes the life of a working class person who's working paycheck to paycheck. Um, then they were able to defend uh, all the stuff that they had before. Uh, you know, they didn't, the company was asking for uh, the elimination of one of their 15 minute breaks. Uh, the, the company withdrew that, uh, eventually, uh, the company was asking to limit the amount of unpaid leave these workers could take in order to go back home uh, to their home countries and see their families and things like this. Uh, and, uh, uh, the company backed down from that proposal as well. Um, and so basically the workers uh, got what they were fighting for and, uh, and the company backed
0: down that's awesome is there anything that they asked for that that, 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 that the workers were asking for in negotiations that they didn't get
4: you know throughout the course of the initial negotiations you know the the, the workers were uh, at the table in good faith mm-hmm. um, and so they were working with uh, uh, the bosses a little bit you um, doing trying to do a little bit of give and take and stuff like that but when it became clear that the bosses uh, uh, weren't sharing that same energy. Uh, the, the workers decided that, you know what, we need we need what we need or we're going to walk, and the bosses ended up backing then.
0: That's, that's really great. Um, and so when is the vote on the tentative agreement? Uh,
4: they should be voting this week.
0: Should be voting this week, so we'll be able to tell everybody whether or not they accepted it next week. But uh, from what we're hearing, it sounds like they got uh, – basically everything that they asked for so that is that's really fantastic um cooper can you what would you say is the kind of what should people take away from this
2: yeah what folks need
4: to understand is a few things number one is that if you go to the table with anything uh off the table then you're negotiating with two hands tied behind your back And so nobody wants to strike, but you can't take it off the table, because as soon as you take it off the table, the boss knows you took it off the table, uh, and they're not going to work with you, because there's no threat to them, uh, and there's no threat to their livelihood. Um, And so no matter what uh, local you are, no matter what the laws are in your area, you need to go to the table uh, with all the potential weapons at your disposal, uh, and every car you have uh, tucked right into that back pocket of yours. Um, otherwise, uh, you're, you're negotiating with two hands tied behind your back. And number two, you got to build solidarity. You know, I was uh, in the early stages of this uh, struggle. Uh, I was uh, with you guys, uh, uh, talking to you all, um, and I was also, you know, um, uh, on many different, you know, labor shows all over the country, uh, trying to build solidarity. And I think the work uh, the, the bosses saw that. The bosses saw how sympathetic uh, the folks down in Alabama were and that, that y'all were willing to stand in solidarity with us up here. Um, and they saw the same thing all over the country and in different parts of the world. Um, so, you know, the bosses can isolate uh, and attempt to intimidate uh, workers if they're allowed to isolate those workers. Uh, but if workers all over the country and all over the world stand up and say they're in solidarity with these workers, uh, then, then it's the bosses who end up intimidated.
3: Well, and I think something that you mentioned earlier that uh, really stuck with me is that 5% of the entire country's pork products are coming out of these plants, uh, Mm -hmm. these Smithfield plants that you guys were were fighting in. And I think that is a testament to something that the Teamsters that were on last week brought up, is how important it is to organize in those places that are essential to the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I can only imagine what would happen if, you know, 5%, of america's pork products just disappeared uh and didn't hit the yeah. shelves you know that would impact a lot of people's lives beyond right. just those workers and their families uh so i think that's a you know kudos to you guys for being able to leverage that position in the supply chain to gain some some really important victories
4: yeah and i think uh, that's that's going to be crucial moving forward um you know uh, that was initially Jimmy Hoffa's tactic. You know the the older Jimmy Hoffa's tactic uh, understood the importance of uh, the uh, uh, the trucking industry uh, and developing these kind of master freight agreements and whatnot at strategic economic choke points. Um, and I think that uh, I think that uh, a labor movement serious about about uh, building power, leverage, and organizing across this country uh, has to focus on a lot of those choke points.
0: Right. I completely agree with you there, Cooper. Uh, and you know, this isn't uh, this isn't something that 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 I had that I had thought about. Uh, asking you but but I think we got we got it all out of the way there and and we've got a, a few more minutes in this segment so I'm I'm interested you, you you said that you know it's important not to take anything off of the table and there's been some talk uh, in the labor movement from Sarah Nelson from Hamilton Nolan in the, in these times about fighting for the removal of no strike clauses do you have any any opinions on that as an idea as a goal and and if you're supportive of it do you have any any opinions on how to get there
4: I think people have a, 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 sometimes don't have a clear view on on what the no strike clauses mean. Um, so number one, uh, what I would say, no strike clause is in the contract, okay? And so what that means is that if you're negotiating and that contract expires, that no strike clause expires too. Um, number two, I would say that uh, it's important for workers uh, uh, moving into the, uh, to the new era of the labor movement uh, to meet the boss's energy wherever it's at. So if the boss is fully willing to uh, violate your collective bargaining agreement, whether you have a no-strike clause or not, uh, there's no reason for you uh, to religiously abide by every section of your contract, Uh, especially if the boss is abusing uh, uh, the collective bargaining agreement. So whether there's a no-strike clause or not, uh, I think the workers need to be willing to act. The same way workers all across West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma uh, went on strike, uh, even though it was illegal for public sector workers to go on strike. Uh, teachers in damn near every county in most states uh, went on strike uh, and got what they were asking for and nobody ended up in jail. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, the conversation, I, I, I'm more interested in, in having a conversation not about certain articles and contracts, uh, but about overall philosophy and tactics. Uh, and the overall philosophy and tactics needs to be by any means necessary, regardless of what the laws or the contracts say.
0: Hmm. Amen. I like it. I like it. That's very cool. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way, but that, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, uh, Cooper, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. I think that was very informative. Uh, I enjoyed getting your take on the no-strike uh, stuff in the contracts. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave uh, leave folks with today?
4: All power to the working class.
0: There we go. That's how we wrapped up last time you were here. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling in, Cooper. Um, so the, uh, the last story that we're going to talk about, and we're going to kind of set the stage here before we go to break, and then we're going uh, to wrap with that on the other side, is uh, the farm worker's on the West Coast dealing with this insane heat wave that we've got, uh, calling it a heat dome or something. And, and uh, you know, uh, the effle- the effects of climate change are real and obvious, and, and, and we're feeling them now. It's not just something that we're going to have to deal with in the future. It's something that right now farm workers and other people are having to deal with today. And, I mean, hundreds of deaths over the last week in on the West Coast from, like, heat strokes and stuff. You know, I mean, this is, like, people are dying in the United States from climate change right now. So uh, yeah, roads are buckling. Like, power lines are melting. I mean, it's it's insane because the infrastructure up there, it, it goes to the importance of this infrastructure bill in Congress and the importance of passing it and the importance of not placating Republican obstinance and things like that in D.C. Uh, because, I, you know, I don't care about the filibuster. We need to we need to make sure that, that people have jobs and that we can we have good roads and, and good power lines and broadband, and, and we need to take care of uh, what they're calling human infrastructure. I don't care so much about how, how we classify it, but uh, people should have child care. People should have elder care so that they can go to work and make money if they need to and not have to spend their entire paycheck making sure that their parents or their children are taken care of. This is just – anyway, that's a tangent. Um Adam, uh, uh, you've been looking into this and, and what they're dealing with, and this um, the the Supreme Court decision that happened uh, that, that that happened last week. So uh, help me set the stage before we yeah, go to break. Yeah, so
3: here. and we'll talk a little bit more about what the Supreme Court decision really said after the break. But I, I think it is interesting that you have this massive heat wave. And we're talking temperatures of 110, up to 120 degrees in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, that'd be pretty damn hot down here in Alabama, but I mean, they are just not at all equipped to be able to to do that, uh, to handle that up there. And we have to remember that there are our brothers and sisters out here picking cherries, picking apples. Uh, They are in the fields dealing with these extreme temperatures. So we had a Supreme Court decision that was anti-union right in the middle of this climate change uh, enhanced extreme heat wave. And on top of that, uh, we've got a lack of proper regulations from state, local and federal governments to protect those workers. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that case and what it all means on the other side of this break. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report.
0: You're listening to the Valley
1: Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison.
4: Hey, you listen to conservative talk radio all week. Why don't you try something different for a change? The Majority Report with Sam Cedar is a five-time award-winning daily left-wing political talk show. We go live every weekday at 11 a.m. Central Time on our YouTube channel. You can find it by searching for The Majority Report. We talk about the news, we take libertarian callers, we have debates, we interview guests on topics ranging from the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, child poverty, capitalism, the intellectual dark web, and more. And that's all just within the last month. If you want to hear what smart, progressive political talk that is occasionally amusing sounds like, then you need to tune in. And you're always welcome to call in if you want to hear the correct opinion on any given topic. I will give it to you. Tune in to The Majority Report at 11 a.m. Central Time on YouTube or later, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. This is the Valley Labor Report. We are talking about the heat wave going through the West... Um, that farm workers and everybody up there is having to deal with. Um, and there was a Supreme Court decision relating to their rights, uh, to, to farm workers' rights in California, uh, that happened last week. Adam, tell us about
3: that. Yeah, so, something to mention is that in California, uh, they have their own set of labor, relate r- labor, uh, regulations, like many states, um, of course, Alabama has very little. Uh, we well, have right- I mean, we have
0: in the same way that they have this law that the Supreme Court basically struck down, Alabama has right-to-work laws, right? right? right. There are different labor regimes in different states.
3: Yeah, and, and the other thing that's also worth noting, we've discussed it with other uh, guests before, is that farm workers are not included in the overall framework of federal labor law. So, you know... For most people, you think 40 hours a week is a full-time job. Any more than that, you get overtime pay. All those kinds of rules and regulations have carved farm workers out. And some of that goes back to the New Deal. And when, you know, the working class movement secured so many of these victories with the New Deal, uh, unfortunately, farm workers and and other domestic workers were often cut out of that. Right. Uh, And, you know, that's a legacy of white supremacy and and the Dixiecrat hold on the South. And, you know, there's a whole historical conversation there. Uh, But I wanted to point you to um, the Supreme Court decision because— in a six to three ruling, we have yet another anti union decision from the Supreme Court. And this one relates to the ability of union organizers to actually go visit workers on the farms. So, prior to this decision under California law, if you were with the United Farm Workers, for example, you were permitted to make uh, a certain amount of visits per year to talk with workers. Not to interfere with their work, but to actually you know, meet with them during lunch breaks or before and after shifts.
0: Yeah, m- my understanding was that it was three hours a day, no more than three hours a day, no more than 120 days a year. And it could only be during non-working time.
3: Right. So this was not something that interfered with business. Uh, it, it was carefully crafted to not do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was taken all the way to the courts so that these large farm owners... Could keep even that modest practice from happening.
0: Oh well, really quick, I want to add: Why is it that that's important? Why can't why can't unions just uh, or why can't workers just talk to unions? Off the farm. Well, one of the reasons is that many of these workers, especially the ones that are immigrants, uh, they literally live on the farm. Right. It is impossible to c- uh, connect with these people off the farm, and even the ones that don't live on the farm live extremely close and are actually shuttled by farm shuttles from their houses to the farms. So it is, and and they work extremely long days and many of them don't speak English um, and it's just, it's incredibly difficult to talk to these people if you can't go onto the farm during lunch breaks. And so California, the the state government said, agree or disagree with it, right? This is supposed to be what states' rights people say is the, the, the benefit of federalism is we have a, we have a laboratory of democracy. Fifty different, fifty different uh, regimes in the country that that allow us to experiment with different things. And so, California saw that there would be a benefit to allowing union organizers to step foot on the farm to talk to workers outside of work time. And this is something that this is something that that states all across the country do with respect to uh, allowing. Uh, either state workers or private actors to go onto people's property because they perceive that as a benefit to society. Take for example health and safety regulations. They have health inspectors either from the state or sometimes through federal contractors. Actually, the uh, the the restaurants are forced to allow these people to go into their property to inspect them. Okay, so so people are allowed to go onto private property by states all the time. This is a totally normal thing. And California saw that there would be a benefit to society for the, to allow this to happen. So that's why the law was in place.
3: And now all of that is is under jeopardy. Not not only are these uh, union employees, the union organizers, not going to be able to visit these farms, uh, the court ruled that basically by owning property, one of the most uh, essential pieces to that is to keep people off your property. Now, never mind uh, how you know, important your, your property may be in terms of the economy, how it's supported by a vast array of state, local, federal subsidies – how infrastructure supports the profitability of that property, and on and on and on. You know, these people like to pretend that their little fiefdoms exist in a vacuum separate from the rest of us. Uh, and the the court ruling is so broad that you know it's only a matter of time before you see some conservative business owners say that they don't mm-hmm. have to allow health inspectors. It's only a matter of time before some moron restaurant owner right. decides to kick out the county health department. Arguing that under this Supreme Court case, they right. have the right to exclude anyone they want from their property, and and I think it's it's definitely a slap in the face to the farm workers uh, because it makes it difficult for them to organize, and it makes it harder for mm-hmm. the union to go see for themselves with their own eyes what is happening. Right. That's the other thing is that uh, you know so much of what happens with these farm workers kind of happens in the dark. Not physically in the dark because they're out in the damn heat (laughs) and under the sun. But, um, you know, most people don't think about what goes into the food that we get. You know, when you Mm -hmm. go to Walmart or Publix and buy produce, most of us don't really factor in the oppression that went into getting that product to the shelves. Right. And it's going to be that much harder for farm workers to uh, organize in their unions now in light of this case which i thought just the, the interesting timing of here we have this heat wave that is unprecedented yeah. uh we have farm workers who are dying on the job mm-hmm. while trying to pick cherries yeah. you know in washington state for example uh ufw united farm workers has called on governor jay Inslee to pass some emergency standards uh to protect these workers from the just extreme heat and you know from what i'm reading it looks like there's a lot of folks up there in washington more concerned about the cherry crop than the human beings who are yep. picking these cherries uh so it's, it's just a slap in the face to see that the timing of it um there was a great piece by alex brown uh that you can find in these times about the efforts by some farm labor groups and some actual allied legislators in colorado uh oregon and washington i believe uh yeah washington colorado oregon there are some decent legislators there who have been working with farm workers and their organizers to try to get some uh, changes in state regulations to protect them because again the federal labor law regime that protects most private industry workers does not apply to farm workers. They have right. their own separate set of regulations and rules. They in California, they actually have a farm worker uh labor relations board. They don't even go through the normal uh you know labor rela- labor relations board as the private industry employees would. So, you know, as we go into this 4th of July weekend, And we, you know, enjoy our weather here in Alabama. We need to remember these sisters and brothers out there on the West Coast, all of whom are dealing with the extreme heat. But especially those workers who are out on the farms or who are out working uh, outside, whatever their job may be, uh, because no one should have to die to put food on the table.
0: Right. Yeah, and there was one time we had uh, uh, Stephen Robbins, an immigration attorney, come to talk, talk to us about uh, about this. And, and we had a caller say something about, well, if they make more money, won't I have to pay more money for my cherries or my bananas or whatever? And it's like, one, no, I don't think so. I don't think that, that your food is actually going to increase in price that much. But two, um, if you you are not entitled to... Uh, uh, have cheap goods from like the essential slavery of other people you know like if you if your cheap goods rely on people dying in the heat you need to pay more for those goods we need to set up uh, institutions and we need to have it such that our society does not allow that to happen and if you have to pay more, then you have to pay more. I mean, that's just that's just the way it is. I don't think you'll have to pay that much more. I think it'll just cut into the profits of the corporations. I think that's what, uh, what that that is what has historically happened when things like this have happened. But but that that's uh you know that that's right. what there's, needs that. There,
3: there's a plenty of uh, huge profit margins that could be cut into so that these workers don't have to go out and die just right. to give you a cheap banana or a cheap cherry. Uh, that's that's ridiculous and asinine to even. You know, expect misery of others so that you can get some cheap fruit at Walmart.
0: Yeah, and this is going to be, you know, I don't talk about politics a whole lot on this show, but this is going to be the lasting legacy of Trump. A lot of things that he can that he did can be reversed, but his federal court appointees appointees are going to issue anti-worker rulings for the rest of my life, and that is very detrimental to the country. Folks, we're going to be back next week.